I'm standing before the judge months later and he looks at me and tells me, you know, young man, I'm going to make an example out of you. And he did. And I was sentenced to 14 or 30 years in prison, plus the two to three year stint that I wasn't done with. So I'm walking out the courtroom at the age of 19 uh, with a 16 to 33 year sentence. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, I'm one of your co-hosts, Alan Briggs. And I'm David Bloom. And today is a really unique episode. Um, We really dig deep today, and uh, we've got a friend of mine, just an incredible friend of mine who I was privileged to do ministry with here in our city and has since moved back literally to the neighborhood that he's from. Um, He has a very deep and intense story, and God has redeemed so much in his life, is doing incredible things through him. But today's episode is deep. We uh, we really dig into uh, his time in prison and what that was like, his time exiting prison, the things he's thinking about and processing. Uh, and so we just wanted to go to that space today and just to let it sit. And so you may feel a little bit uncomfortable during this time, uh, but that's okay. We need to process many of the deep things that, that Myron is sharing about. And so we just kind of want um, you to be able to go there. We'll actually have him back on the podcast to share about entrepreneurship and just he's doing incredible things. But during this time, we really wanted to focus on uh, what it's like to be an ex-felon. What are some of the things he's thinking about? What are some of the disadvantages that he faces? And David, I know you've had the opportunity to, to meet Myron. We've had him come back out to Colorado to speak. And um, I've been just so impacted by the fact um, that he is not defined by his past. He's bringing so many people hope through his story. Um, what has, has kind of stuck out to you about Myron and his story? Yeah, it's just the the story of of redemption. And so when I got to meet Myron, he spoke at the Multiply Conference. Just the the hope that he has in his his kind of his new identity in Christ. And so that story of redemption brings hope to people that, yeah, they might not share the same story as he does. They might not be able to relate with those details, but the story of redemption and not being defined by your past and, and entering into a new future that is reframed with the hope that that God has for us, I think is a message that we all need to hear. So encouraging. So uh, parts of today are going to be hard to hear and uncomfortable. They're raw, they're truthful, but Myron is all of those things. He is raw, he's truthful, he's the real deal, and we need to hear today's episode. So welcome my friend, Myron Pierce, to the podcast. Well, hey guys, I am really excited to introduce you to a good friend of mine, Myron Pierce, on the podcast today. Myron, thanks for joining us, man. My man. What's up, brother? I wish we could be hanging out together. Wish I could be with you in North Omaha, or you could be back here in Colorado Springs, but we'll have to settle for the airwaves today. Uh, guys, Myron is a good friend of mine and one of those guys who I just know God is working in his life. Now, chances are I have no idea how, because he's doing so many different things that we're going to crack open <laughs> several of yeah. those today. Uh, but kind of like me, uh, he is multivocational, got all kinds of things going on, but they're all heading in the direction of raising people up to how God has designed them. He leads a church, he leads several businesses, and he's going to tell us about those. So Myron, why don't you just start us out, man? Give us a glimpse or a snapshot into your story. How did you get where you are at today in North Omaha? Just give us a couple of high points, I guess, of, of your story. Yeah. When when I tell people I'm from North Omaha and there's, there's an inner city in North Omaha, 
they almost laugh because they they don't understand or know that um, Omaha was dubbed the number one deadliest place for an African-American to live. And so that was the context of me being born in North Omaha. I was born to both my parents were on crack cocaine. My dad was on heroin. His dad was in and out the penitentiary. My dad in and out the penitentiary. So I grew up in a single parent home. And when you have, you know, a single parent home where your mom is on drugs and she's in and out of uh, prostitution and trying to put food on the table, then all of a sudden, for me, just a young kid growing up in the ghetto, man, you 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 revert to the streets. And so the streets raised me, right? And and in raising me, what what does that, you know, what comes with that? Well, gangs, drugs, crime. You know, so by the time I'm 15, I'm dropped out of high school. 16, I'm facing 100 years in the penitentiary. 18, I'm facing 200 years in the penitentiary. And uh, only to find myself standing before the judge, March 20, uh, March, I'm sorry, yeah, March 21st is when I got arrested the second time and spent a considerable considerable amount of time in in jail. So I'm standing before the judge months later and he looks at me and tells me, you know, young man, I'm going to make an example out of you. And he did. And I was sentenced to 14 or 30 years in prison plus the two to three year stint that I wasn't done with. So I'm walking out the courtroom at the age of 19 uh, with a 16 to 33 year sentence. This is in 2002. And so I've, I've had quite the journey. And man, along that journey, uh, I met Jesus the, the night I was arrested in 2002 and uh, fell on my knees, man, and, and uh, prayed a big prayer. And just said, hey, God, I'm destroying my life. But if you change me, I serve you for the rest of my life. And so that really began my journey, Alan, to faith, my journey of understanding what the gospel was, its implications for me as a young African-American man awaiting prison. And so eventually I went to prison and spent a considerable amount of time there, man. Wasn't supposed to get out of prison until 2018. And I had an encounter with God in prison. And God really spoke to my heart and told me, I'm going to I'm going to get you out of prison and you're going to plant churches and you're going to be a pastor. And so I had no reference for that because I didn't grow up in church. In fact, I had a a disdain for church because of the perception I had on uh, being judged and, and so forth. And so when God really spoke to my heart, he he really put a dream in me that I will, you know, return back to North Omaha to the inner city and where I was selling dope, I'd now be selling hope, you know, for free. Right. And so spent some time in prison, man, a miracle happened. I ended up out before um, my time. I got out in 2008 and uh, man, just the journey of going to Bible college and meeting a guy who introduced me uh, to ministry, who hired me straight out the penitentiary. And uh, right after I got out the penitentiary, about three months later, Alan, man, I, we planted Bridge Church in North Omaha, Nebraska, uh, which literally is in the same neighborhood I, I grew up in as a gangbanger. And so that was my introduction to ministry in the free world. And so a couple years after we launched Bridge Church, I uh, felt like God was calling me to go out to Colorado. So that's where I met you. I just kind of parachuted in and met you and you became a good friend and a great mentor to me. 
And a few years later, you know, God called me back to my city and, you know, on a mission to to plant more churches with the church I was previously at. And as of late, almost two years ago, I transitioned out into this new venture of church multiplication and uh, we launched Mission Church. So Mission Church was launched September 2017. And within a year, we launched another church. So two churches in in, in one year. And uh, here we are today. In the middle of all that, I got married, been married for 10 years. So my beautiful bride, Kristen, and uh, together we have four kids, uh, you know, and three boys, a, a young girl, two, and have a, I have an older daughter. She's 19. Her name's Emilion. And so I've just been on this journey, man, of God. Really, if there was a theme to my story, Alan, I think it would be hope. Because when I look at the trajectory of inner city kids, whether they're white, black, Latino, Asian, the trajectory for us, specifically even African-Americans, is we're, we're, we're deemed to not make it past 18. And so when I look statistically at uh, the, the people around me, you know, friends, family, in the last, I don't know, 19 years, and uh, I've, I've seen, uh, we've had about, I don't know, maybe about 30, 35 people died of gun violence who I grew up with. And so as I look back in retrospect, I see this thread of hope um, in, in my life, which has informed the way we do ministry in the inner city, has informed why we plant churches and why we raise up leaders. And it's incredible to, I mean, just number one here, that what God has done in your life, the hope uh, in, in your own life. But man, incredible to see how it's spilling over into so many other people's lives. Uh, I had the opportunity to stay with Myron and Kristen and their bruiser boys uh, a couple years ago uh, with my boys and we were driving through and to have them drive me through uh, the streets of North Omaha to talk to me about the realities. Um, it's one of those we hated to see you go uh, from Colorado, but of course we had to let you go. And it's incredible to see uh, what's going on there. And so just cheering you on, man, to see all the things that you're doing. There's so many different directions we could take today's interview, but I wanted to unpack some of the the barriers and realities I've come to understand more because of you, some of the businesses you started here in Colorado Springs. We began to talk about what people are now calling second chance hiring uh, and really wanted to unpack this idea of uh, ex-felons and some of the, the barriers. Uh, Myron, talk to us. What does an ex-felon face? Um, what barriers or challenges do they have to sort of regaining a normal life and even things as basic as work, uh, employment, place to live when they head back out of prison? Uh, kind of just kind of let us into that. Yeah. So to unpack that a little bit, Alan, I think the the precedent we have to set in this conversation is the culture that we've created in America that has set, I think in my opinion, has really set people up to fail and not thrive. So, you know, when you when you enter into the penal system and you undergo, you know, all the preliminary things, whether or not you're going to be found guilty and and the systematic things that even happen with that. One of the things that is is real interesting once you enter the culture of prison and I and I talk about this uh, in a book I wrote, but but the culture is this. You are given a number. Right. So every every inmate, for one, you go from 
my name's Myron to inmate Myron Pierce, five, five, zero, eight, nine. So psychologically, psychologically, when, when that becomes the narrative added to your life, it flips on a switch from human to animal. It, it flips a switch from, from human um, with dignity to no dignity because you you broke the law. And so that's the culture. And so now you have a whole subculture in prison of basically savages. And, and some come in with white collar crimes, some come in with blue collar crimes, some come in with, with deeper issues uh, when it comes to messing with kids or even murder. And all of a sudden you put all of those people in one place. You put a murderer in with a child molester. You put a child molester in with somebody who robbed somebody. And then not to mention, now you have races in there together who had never done life together. So now you have this cultural piece that some people in corrections haven't even been trained around. So um, you have black people together. You have white people who are Aryan or you have blacks who are, um, you know, neo-African or Pan-African or, uh, you know, whatever you want to put with that. And then you have the native crew and, and then you have the, the the Latino gangs. And so now you have races, gangs, criminals, animals all together in one octagon, you know, one ring. And so that in and of itself creates problems when it comes to how you deal with conflict or, or how you deal with authority and, and so forth. And so what that produces, Alan, is an identity that's added to your narrative that wasn't given to you before you, when you were in your mother's womb. Does that make sense? That's, that's a lot to unpack, but even just the idea that there's a slow eroding away of the image of God in you, your value, your dignity, you're a number. And then to think about all those realities, hard to even know where to start in that, but keep talking. Yeah. So, so you're a number. And so that's key to, to reentry. Because if I come out a number and not a name, even in my own mind, I'm already set up for failure. So when the institution has become a part of who I am psychologically and, and absolutely spiritually, you, you automatically are at a disadvantage because of the gap between you and the civilized world. And so the, the other disadvantage is this. The other day, I'll give you a story. The other day, I picked a young man up from jail. He's been in prison uh, for about a decade, right? So in and out of prison, in and out of jail, I pick him up. And, and that's one of the first flags I pick him up. Because when you get out of jail, you get out the penitentiary there, you don't have transportation. So that's, that's one of the biggest issues when it comes to reentry. And so when, when you don't have transportation, you automatically still feel in some type of way that you have to rely on somebody else to help you. And then that becomes, if you're a man in this situation, uh, really hard, a really hard pill to swallow because men are, were built to, you know, Paul talks about if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And so I picked this young man up and I'm taking him everywhere to get his things, you know, things in order, ID. He doesn't have an ID, right? And so, okay, where's your ID? Now, this young man is a Native American. Well, it's in Macy, Nebraska. I've never heard of Macy, Nebraska. Where's that? It's two hours away. Okay, now we have a problem. Now, now as we're processing this together, 
and we're talking about this, it's overwhelming for him. Now, why is it overwhelming? Because in prison, your decisions are limited. When you get free, you have an overwhelming, unlimited amount of decisions that you need to make, but you weren't prepared to make those because you didn't get the, 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 the necessary resources to help you problem solve. And so the best way to solve a problem is to do what you did before you just got out. So, so you have that issue. And so now we're, we're looking at, okay, we're, how's he going to eat? Well, I've never signed up for, you know, snack card or EBT card. Okay, great. Now what about a job? Okay, let's help you find a job. We get into the we get into the little restaurant and he gets an application and he's just staring at the application. I say, "Why are you staring at the application?" He says, "Well, I I never I've never filled out an application. This man is 35 years old, never filled out an application." So we get down to the work history part. And he says, well, what do I put? I've never had a job. Now, I've been down this road before, so I was able to help him. But I said, well, what did you do in prison? Well, I was a cook. I was I was a janitor. OK, let's put that down. Let's put that down. You work janitorial services, state of Nebraska, these dates. Here's the number. And all of a sudden, um, as I'm as I'm sharing, you know, kind of helping him through this, it dawned on me. Not only had he never had he never, you know, filled out an application, but he's never had an interview. All those many years in prison, in jail, never took advantage of the resource if it was there to process how do you engage in the workforce. Okay, so that whole situation is is another, you know, is another strand in this tapestry of reentry and how to do this as an ex felon and so forth. Now, here's the other thing, Alan. So now, when you have a guy, now thankfully he he reentered through our discipleship program, but but imagine if he didn't have us, and imagine if he had to go find a place to stay. So two things. Three things are, are, are mandatory. Number one, you need first and last month's rent. Um, you need, I'm sorry, you need you need deposit and you need first month's rent. And in some cases, you need you know you need another rent. You know every you know nowadays renters are just landlords are just piling and piling this stuff up. And so, let's just say first months and deposit. Okay, but you don't have a job, and or or now you do have a job, but you're not getting paid for another two weeks. Okay, so that's one issue. Then the second issue is this. Um, when they say, okay, we need to do a background test, take, you know, to on your background, you know, now all of a sudden it's not just a money issue, but it's his it's his history. And if you have a sex crime, you're for sure not getting in to to this landlord's house. Okay, and so here's a third one. Not only do they run a credit, not a criminal background, but they run a credit score on you. Now, but growing up in North Omaha, growing up in the struggle, no one ever talked about a credit score. What is that? And how do you get that? And how do I, you know, you know, and so now you have these three important um, issues that that people who are getting out of prison aren't, you know, 
necessarily equipped to engage and overcome. And as I'm with this this guy, I, you know, I'm telling you, man, is overwhelming. And so those three things alone, a place to stay, a car to drive, a job to work, food, clothing, and all of a sudden people can start to say things like the children of Israel would say, man, it was better that we were in Egypt. Sure. At least it was predictable. At least I had a plan. At least I knew what I was going to do each day. Right. So these are just a few of the, you know, struggles and challenges that we face. And then here's a, here's a big one that would take a whole nother podcast, but the public perception of people who are re-entering back into society as ex-felons. It's, Alan, if if I had if I hadn't had Jesus and the gospel, it'd be hard to navigate, you know, our our culture as someone who's been in the penitentiary because you have this you have this this X on your back. For example, I was on parole. I got out the penitentiary in two thousand and eight. I was on parole for a decade, man, a decade. So anytime I wanted to, you know, so here I am a pastor at, in, a, in a inner city church and we're about to take a mission trip to Mexico. Guess who can't go? Me. Guess, guess who every time I, every time I get ready to leave the state, who I have to check in with? Man, when it comes to politics and voting, Guess who initially couldn't vote in some cities, in some states? Me. And so now so I can hear I can hear someone say, well, well, that's your fault. <laughs> right? You you put yourself in this situation. And and and, and to that I would say, where's your empathy? And, and and what if you were born into a family where both of your parents were on crack cocaine? What if all your uncles and aunties were prostitutes, pimps, hustlers, and murderers? And what if the only cards you were dealt when it came to trying to get trying to you know get to a place of of health um, that, that you didn't have the access because you didn't go west of 72nd Street um, because you thought your only world was them projects that you grew up in. Right. And so it's it's a huge dilemma reentering into society, especially at the rate and speed of how our world is changing. And so if we're if we're not careful as a society on 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 this agenda on how we assist, empower, elevate um and bring back to a place of dignity, uh I don't think we actually can move forward together until we see the least of our society as equal because Certainly, we're not equal anymore. I'm not equal. I'm not equal to you, Alan. Obviously, you think I'm equal, and you 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 think I have dignity and I have worth. But the reality is, the message that our culture sends is you're not equal. We need these conversations. And Myron, what I appreciate about anytime I'm with you is we're going to talk about uncomfortable but necessary conversations. And if you're listening, you're driving down the road going, man, this wasn't, this wasn't a feel good 
podcast, guys, we need to push in to these uncomfortable topics. And Myron, you're saying if we don't, as the people of God, churches, nonprofits, kingdom business leaders, if we don't understand these realities, how can we bring those two words, empathy and dignity? I want to make sure in all of Myron's story and all this other young man's story, we don't miss that. Empathy and dignity. And uh, so many different directions we can take this. I love to see how what God shaped in you in prison and in those first few years out, you're now immediately leading into other stories. We want to talk a little bit about how your church engages that as well. But thank you. Thanks for your honesty. We need that. We need to be pushing into these conversations. Yeah. Um, talk about some shifts. Those first few years out, Myron, I know that uh, some other men kind of tapped you on the shoulder and, and said, I believe in you and invited you into some things. But what are some shifts uh, mentally and spiritually that you've had to navigate um, to be able to continue pushing forward in your own story? Well, I think the shifts for me, Alan, happened the moment I went to prison. So here's the reality. Um, if I'm going to shift into what God has for me, I have to first personally make a decision that despite my circumstances, I'm not a victim. That was one shift. One shift was that I'm not a victim in the Imago day. Uh, and that, that I'm that I'm marked by the image of God. And so one shift that I made, Alan, from the jump, even though I went into a prison where they gave me a number, that didn't mean I had to receive it. That, that didn't mean that I was who they said I was. And so the shift right. for me, yeah, so the shift for me was, you're not a victim, number one. That was a huge shift. I'm a son. I'm God's son. And it and it had to, it had to be a revelatory shift from my head to my heart, and so that that's that's a me and the Holy Spirit thing. It's anybody. Uh, we all need to make, be shifts and make shifts. And so here's the reality, Alan, is you don't have to go to prison to feel like a victim because there are many people that are listening right now and they're victims. They're victims in a prison of depression. They're victims in a prison of of sexual addiction, they're victims in a prison of oppression or anxiety and, and and things like that. And people, if we're not careful, we can take on the role of victim. And the moment I become a victim, I can't get help. So I have to I have to make the, the shift from and victim says this, uh, Alan, victim says I have no power. Victim says everyone but me has power and I am and I am hopeless. And so the gospel, the gospel that the only thing that I know, Alan, is the only the gospel has the power to transform a victim into a man or woman of valor and power and and might. Like only the gospel can do that. And I see it in Gideon. Right. He's a, he's a he's a victim. He's 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 in bondage. He's in, you know. But but through this process, and, and I'm not saying it was an overnight thing by any means, because I at times in my last, you know, since being out of prison in 2008, I've had a relapse. I've relapsed back into victim only because I hadn't yet processed some of the wounds in my life that triggered me to go back, if that makes sense. And so that's the first shift of victim. The other, the other shift that I had to make was personal responsibility. 
right? So from the jump, the day I got arrested, I decided that regardless of what was going to happen in my life, I was going to take personal responsibility for my life, regardless of whether or not the system is the way that it is, mass incarceration, set up to fail, didn't have the parents, drugs pumped in my community, guns put in my hand, people dying all around me, trauma, all these things that I could point to and say, man, this is why I am how I am. And yet at some point, regardless of how I got to where I was, I had to take personal responsibility and moving forward. And That's I believe, good. yeah, I believe that, that this is applicable in business in organizational life in church and marriage as a leader. If I don't take personal responsibility for my condition, then I can't move forward. So those were two things from victim personal responsibility. Uh, and then here's the other one that I realized, and I had to learn it from prison. The shift I had to make was that I may be in chains. <laughs> I may be behind the wall, but God's vision isn't chained. His plans for my life isn't, isn't in bondage or subservient to my situation. And so God's vision for my life, Alan, was a shift in my life because the reality and the woman named, uh, I forget the book, but she, Ruby Payne, Framework for Understanding Poverty. She talks about people who come out of poverty are those who have a vision for the future. And one of the things that was very instrumental from the jump, from the day I got arrested this second time, God gave me a vision for the future. And, and, and what I had to do is I had to walk it out. How did I walk it out? Well, sometimes I had to literally write it out. I had to write out from a prison cell my 20 year plan. Right. And so uh, some other shifts that I had to make was was about my own education. Was I going to be a self learner or was I going to wait for somebody to hand something to me for free? So I decided from that day in jail in prison, man, listen, listen, I'm going to be an avid learner. And, and over time, I learned that this tenacity for learning actually set me up beyond my years and also helped me uh, to to actually navigate the problems that I that I was going to have to to navigate uh, when I got out when I got out of prison. And those shifts right there helped me. Here's another shift I had to make. Now, this is all pre getting out. Right. Because I believe if you may, if you wait to make a shift when you get out, you've already lost. Um, but but another shift I had to make was embracing the pain. From the decisions I made. So I was in I was in you know, I was in my cell one day and I had my chessboard sitting on my TV and I was just looking at the chessboard. And I remember thinking, there's always a winner in chess the moment you sit down with your opponent. There's always a winner and a loser. The winner is the one who has the capacity to think in steps more than his opponent or her opponent. So if I'm sitting across from somebody and he's, he or she's only thinking three steps ahead, but I got, but I'm, but I'm 10. The outcome is favorable. I'm, I'm favored to win in that situation. And so what sparked that was this. 
that that with my life as a kid and as a young adolescent growing into my teen years as I'm facing all this time, I didn't think ahead. I, I didn't. And because I didn't think ahead, it caused me pain. And not only caused me pain, but it destroyed family. It destroyed friends and it destroyed people that was around me because I didn't have the wherewithal to think 10 steps ahead, only one step ahead. And so at that point, as I'm reflecting on that in my prison cell, all of a sudden I said, God, I embrace the pain that I feel right now. And here's what he showed me. Myron, you're, you're experiencing this pain right now, but there's coming a day, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where you're going to be able to comfort other people who are in your, in your situation right now. So don't be afraid of the pain because after all, Myron, you're used to numbing the pain instead of embracing it. So those are a couple of shifts that I had to make before I got out of prison. You know, and, and as I've made those shifts, I've had to continue to make more shifts, but I think those have been foundational. That's huge. And guys listening, that's just human stuff. I mean, that isn't somebody in prison. That isn't somebody who's addicted. That isn't somebody who just comes from a hard scenario. I mean, how many people are just trying to fight off entitlement today and aren't sitting in the pain? So man, so many good paradigm shifts in there, Myron. We talk about this idea of don't ask a man what he wants for dinner when he's drowning. And this idea of just barely surviving. How many people feel like they're just barely surviving every day and aren't you're talking about looking ahead and what a beautiful picture of that um what do you tell ex-felons when when you're picking up that guy not only just taking him to you know his next right step but what do you tell people right when they exit prison one step at a time one day at a time number one and the wisdom in that is do what you can do now and whatever is outside of your control is outside of your control. Secondly, I tell them, stay connected. Men and women who don't survive and end up going back try to do life by themselves. And, and, and so I, I make a huge emphasis on discipleship. If you want to stay out, you want to thrive, you want to be sober, you want to, you want to live out your days you know, successfully, Stay connected. And thirdly, I tell them this. Your circle will be your demise or lead you to your destiny. Boom. And so, yeah. And so it's just like, those, those are simple, right? But it's like for somebody getting out the penitentiary, you know, another one, um, Alan, is I've been there. And so sometimes it's not even what I tell them. It's just being there to listen. When they call me at five o'clock in the morning and one of our residents is choking out the other resident and he has them in the air, right? You know, you got to go back over there. You got to say, it's going to be okay. It's not yep. the end of the world. Uh, this is one bump in the road um, where guys just trying to get your attention. Wow. Well, incredible stuff, man. Number one, it's, it's amazing to see how God is using your own story to bring hope. You're a hope dealer. And whether you try to or not, Myron, it's just leaking out of your story. I love that. So grateful for our 
friendship. So grateful for you kind of cracking this open for us to be able to see a different perspective on this podcast, a very different one today, but we are having ridiculously practical conversations about health. And many of us feel like a prisoner in our own lives uh, from time to time, or some people listening, maybe choking up in tears saying, that's me right now. Guys, go back through this and listen to this in the lens of human nature. Listen to this in the lens of being created in the image of God, having dignity, having worth, simply because you're God's kid. Uh, Myron, we're going to have you back in a future podcast. We want to talk specifically more about grit, uh, side hustle, entrepreneurship. Um, But to kind of close out this episode, how have you and Mission Church helped the down and out? I mean, just share a couple of those ways besides kind of reentering people in, in society. What are some of the ways you and the church have helped the down and out around you in North Omaha? Yeah, a couple of years ago, money was falling from the sky. <laughs> Not literally, but hell was falling from the sky and beating on the houses in our neighborhood. And I called my friend and I said, what if God could use us to build a multi-million dollar company that hires men and women getting out of prison? And and what if God could use us to to launch a successful company that would help us um, venture into the future when it comes to ministry dollars and impact? What could God do with us? And out of that, we launched a roofing company um, that's become very successful. And the amount of people we've been able to hire uh, in season and out of season during the snow, we've moved into snow removal and uh, we've we've hired about 40 people this season. Right now, uh, we have two full time employees, one part time employee, and God is just doing it. And, and so that's one small story of hiring men and women getting out of prison, giving men, men and women a job, giving them dignity. And um, and then on top of that, Alan, uh, in the last two years, the amount of businesses we've been able to start uh, in our in our very community has been uh, near and dear to my heart as we as we try to dignify and, and add hope to people's lives. I love it. Myron, we're going to have you back. We're going to talk about entrepreneurship. We always yeah. have more to talk about. I mean, whenever I see you, it's man, what what's one of 50 different areas we're going to talk about from being a husband, being a dad. Uh, but I just want you to know I appreciate you, grateful for your friendship. And I know that we had some paradigm shifts today as we kind of think through this. Um, where can folks find you and kind of your hub, your base camp where people can track along with you and learn from you? Yeah, want to learn from me, go to myronpierce.com. If you want to learn more about church planting, go to thisismission.org. And I'm all on all the social media platforms that that exist <laughs> uh, today. Everywhere anywhere <laughs> guys head to byronpierce.com you can see about his books there releasing all kinds of cool new products and what what i love is that they all come out of just who you are your story your framework how god is using you a brilliant business leader brilliant church leader but a great friend faithful to the gospel there in north, north omaha so myron thanks for joining us on today's episode man thanks man Well, guys, that was a deep and intense conversation with Myron Pierce, but I so value his honesty. He's not holding anything back, and he gives us such unique perspectives into understanding real things, real barriers that people feel um, both in their minds and then societal barriers that people hit when they exit prison. 
So really the question I want to leave you with to process today's episode is how can we open up our hearts and our homes to people who are ex-felons, people who feel like the system is stacked against them? How can we make space for people on the fringes? And what I'm so convicted of is those thoughts that somebody put a hand on Myron's shoulder and said, you've got what it takes and welcomed him into that next season of life. And I'm challenged to wonder, who can I do that to? Who's having those limiting beliefs? Who feels like they don't have what it takes to be able to overcome that? We need to be people of the second chance who are literally putting our hands on other shoulders and saying, you have what it takes. A deep and inspiring, real and raw episode from Myron Pierce. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. We'll catch you next time. So long.